The following recording may contain explicit language. I can't get more explicit than may. Let's just say it may. It's Wednesday, November 7th, 2018. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. If I have one takeaway from last night, it'd be David Urban. CNN, please take this guy away. Rick Santorum, I get it. You want a right-wing voice. Not a smart conservative, but a right-wing voice. He was elected to something once, but David Urban, they list him as a political consultant. He's a lobbyist. He was like the lobbyist of the year three times in a row. David Urban is like the David S. Pumpkins of irrelevance. A few months ago, you know, Republican interest in this election was really low. And you'd have seen a total bloodbath to, to come today, right? The president went out there and, and like it or not, like his campaign tactics or not, they moved numbers. They moved people. They motivated the base. The, the, the enthusiasm gaps closed. The bases turn out. As Nina said, this could be a battle of bases. We'll see what's going to happen, but it will be a battle. Will Urban be a battle was one of those guys on the CNN panel. And by the way, the panel at this point could provide for two minions, one grand jury, and the electoral difference in Georgia's sixth. So Urban was one of those guys who set the agenda for the hot item of the night. Is it a wave? Is it not a wave? Tangibly, Democrats gained control of the House of Representatives by a decent margin. But Urban injected into the conversation, and no one could put it down, this stupid and subjective nonsense term. But it wasn't a wave. I think it might have been a wave. It's like 12-year-old girls debating. Was he looking at you or was he looking near you? Or like some episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm. I don't know if it was a wave. I mean, I think it was a nod. It was certainly an acknowledgement. It was in the realm of acknowledgement. But was it a wave Horn beats Russell, McAdams beats Love. Perhaps it was a, a manual spasm, shall we say. A fluttering of the lower limb, which we only mistook for a wave. Finkelhauer beats Blum, Wexton beats Comstock. Wait, wait, guys, I got it right here. Check this out. A wave transfers energy through matter or space with little or no associated mass transport. So maybe this wasn't a real wave. This just in, Spanberger beats Brat, Sharice Davids beats Yoder. Well, I guess we could all just agree to disagree. Dems pick up seven governorships. Wait, okay, hold on, let's go back. Was it more like a ta-ta wave or you got room, you got room, you still got a couple inches, cut it, cut it, parallel parking type wave. Breaking now, Dems win 333 legislative races, state houses, state senates, state assemblies, seems big. But Trump came out, his minions came out, an overly emotive Van Jones and James Carville, so let's blame some Democrats. They were glum. So we were all debating, and I think internalizing, that this wasn't a wave. Kind of disappointing. Trump goes out to argue, and, and, and we believe him for some reason, that, you know, this always happens in a midterm. Yeah, that's true. It often happens in midterm elections that the sitting president's party loses seats. But you know what happens when it does happen? Well, under Bush and under Obama or under Clinton, that president comes out and concedes that happened. We lost. And they'll almost always say, I get the message. It's a new beginning. And I want to tell the American people I will work to re-earn their trust. No, not Trump. He says, yeah, I'm really happy with the results. And we say, yeah, that seems to be a good point. And by we, I mean more than David Urban. So fine. If you want to wave off the wave, wave it off. A wave election is the franchise quarterback of politics. It's a stupid thing to debate. But what really matters is who's calling shots under center. Today, the country woke up. 
a lot more democratic than it was before and a lot more empowered to stand up to Trump, who surely, for all his talk and bluster, must realize that he has to... Oh, he just got rid of Jeff Sessions. On the show today, more big themes from the big night. But first, speaking of these 220 or so Democrats in the House of Representatives, let's have one on. Jackie Speer represents California's 14th District. As a young congressional staffer working for Leo Ryan, she went on a fact-finding mission to Guyana when members of the Jonestown cult opened fire on her and the congressman. He died, she lived, and she vowed to live a meaningful life. So she is now here to talk about the upcoming congressional agenda and her experiences as recounted in her new memoir, Undaunted. Hey, all you true crime fans, this is Mike Ferguson. And this is Mike Morf. And we'd like to invite you to listen to our podcast, Criminology. Launched in 2017, we've covered a variety of strange cases from murders to missing persons. Some of the cases are ones you may not have heard of. Other cases we cover are some of the most historic in true crime. There are 200 episodes of Criminology available to binge on right now. And new episodes come out every Saturday night. Subscribe to Criminology today, wherever you listen to your podcast. If Jackie Spear weren't a member of Congress, her life would be fascinating, her biography would be worth reading, and indeed it was. But, you know, for a decade, she has served in Congress. Now she will be serving in the majority, which uh, she did in her first term. The new book is called Undaunted, Surviving Jonestown, Summoning Courage and Fighting Back. United States Congresswoman from California, Jackie Spear is here. Thank you for joining me. Thank you, Mike. So we are speaking on the night after a, I'm not going to use the word wave, but you know, the Democrats won a very clear majority of seats. And I think it means that 118 women at least will be serving in the next Congress. That's up from 107. Good. We need to diversify. It would be nice if Congress were, you know, 51% women. But beyond the representation factor, what do women officials bring that a man might not? Well, they, le- they bring their life experience. You know, when I first got elected to the state legislature, my campaign consultant said to me, you know, you need to kind of broaden your portfolio and, and get involved in other issues. And so I you know, took that advice for a little while. And then I thought to myself, wait a minute, if I don't become the spokesperson for women's issues, who will? Right. I mean, unless you've, you know, lived in a woman's skin, it's kind of hard right. to know, you know, all the experiences that make their lives different. And I'm sure when a former member of the military, which used to only be men, ran for Congress, no one ever said, you need to learn some women's issues to broaden your appeal. Now, I saw a speech you gave, and you write about it, um, and you've talked about it, and it was an amazing bit of theater when it was a representative named Chris Smith from New Jersey takes to the floor of Congress and does this scare tactic thing where he reads about not even a late term abortion, right? Or what they call it. He talks about the effects and how an abortion is, uh, is performed and he does it emphasizing how horrible it is. You from what you say right there in the video, um, you throw out your prepared remarks and say, now I want to talk about the abortion that I had. So, A, that's, of course, something that a woman can only talk about. But in that moment, what was the effect of talking from the gut and making those remarks? Well, I was so challenged 
by what he was reading. He was reading from a book and he was talking about sawing off the limbs of a fetus. So I lived through an experience of, of losing uh, a fetus at 17 weeks and there wasn't any sawing off of limbs. And there is such a cavalier manner in which Chris Smith in particular and others who are anti-choice speak about the issue of abortion that is so offensive to women. It's not ever done by um, with a cavalier attitude. It's oftentimes done with a great deal of pain and anguish. And the truth of the matter is every miscarriage ends in an abortion, whether yeah. it's a DNC or a DNE. And the I, I was just so taken aback by it that I just lashed out at him. And I said, how dare you speak to, to me in a manner like that when you've never, ever endured it? You know, I had really planned to speak about something else, but the gentleman from New Jersey has just put my stomach in knots. Because I'm one of those women he spoke about just now. I had a procedure at 17 weeks, pregnant with a child that had moved from the vagina into the cervix. And that procedure that you just talk about was a procedure that I endured. I lost a baby. But for you to stand on this floor and to suggest, as you have, that somehow this is a procedure that is either welcomed or done cavalierly or done without any thought is preposterous. I would suggest to you that it would serve us all very well if we moved on with this process and started focusing on creating jobs for the Americans who desperately want them. I yield back. I walked away after I had spoken, and I was trembling. Mm -hmm. I was really trembling. Um, and then John Lewis, of all people, stops me and says, that was one of the best speeches I've heard on the floor. Yeah. And then he tells me this gut-wrenching story about his aunt, who as a young child, uh, he remembers her coming down the stairs in a blood-stained garment, um, and his mother takes her away, and he never sees her again. Mm -hmm. And that's what happened before Roe versus Wade, before abortions were legal in this country. They were back-alley abortions, and we're not going back. So it was an important moment for me because it crystallized the experience for lots of women across this country that have been... Um, forced to think that this is shameful, um, and it's it's not shameful. So you are, I think, among the rare members of Congress who has been shot. That's correct. Um, this was in Guyana when you were uh, on uh, this as congressional staff, and you were investigating what would become Jonestown. Now you don't have to be shot, I think, to see the logic of some gun control and the idea of well, you favor a ban on AR-15s or similar weapons? Of course I do. Yes. In fact, I carried the legislation in California on the assembly floor, and I actually talk about it in the book, when one of my colleagues stands and says, Ms. Spear, have you ever shot an assault weapon? Like, how can you, you know, as to suggest that somehow I was incapable of wanting to ban them 
if I hadn't shot them. Right. And I said— That's the, the equivalent be, have you ever performed an abortion? Right. <laughs> and then what do you know? Yeah. <laughs> so I, I basically said, no, but I have a question for you. Have you ever been shot by an assault weapon? Of course, the whole place went still. And the bill flew off the assembly floor and was signed into law by a Republican governor, then Pete Wilson, which right. was augmenting the existing ban that we had in California. So, And we passed a ban— in the U.S. Congress, Diane Feinstein was the author after, you know, a, just a absolute um, melee that took place in San Francisco in a um, in a building in the financial district. So we had it in effect for ten years. It sunsetted, and now we're we're dealing with you know eleven dead people at the um, synagogue in Pittsburgh. How effective was the assault weapons ban from ninety four to two thousand four? Uh, it was very effective. The number of uh, mass shootings were down by a third. Yeah. One argument that critics of that ban make is that it was based on the cosmetic aspects of the rifle, and therefore a grip could be changed, a sight can be changed, and you could get around the law. As someone who sponsored the law, why can't the law just define an illegal weapon by number of rounds it fires per minute? Why does it have to define it based on anything external? Like, yes, why can't that be done? It can be done. Yeah. Probably should be done. Yeah. Want to run for Congress? <laughs> well, look, I'd represent Brooklyn. I mean, <laughs> you need me to get elected in uh, Minnesota or, or Alabama or something. So in Florida, they pass bump stocks. In California, they have very much stricter gun controls than America, America at large. Is it an NRA issue mostly, do you think, the inability to pass yes, these laws? absolutely an NRA issue. And I think the other thing we need to know about the NRA is, I believe, I don't have you know, documentation yet, but I believe the NRA was working with Russian oligarchs and operatives to undermine um, the election. And I think a lot of m the money that you um, had coming into the NRA were from Russians that then was used to promote the presidency of Donald Trump. Yeah. Which brings me to the new Congress with Democrats in control. Tell me how you think the Intelligence Committee, which you are a part of, how's that going to change? Well, the Intelligence Committee is going to do its job. It didn't do its job in the last two years. It became the mouthpiece of President Trump. Uh, you didn't see the the Senate investigation by the Intelligence Committee shut down. Right. But you did see it. And that's a credit it. to Republican Senator Tillis and Burr, and they worked together, and they said, let's have some substance, as opposed to your colleague from the congressional delegation from California, Devin Nunes, who quite the opposite, used the Intelligence Committee to hold the water of the administration. That's right. Yeah. So you're going to see us um, do a, a serious investigation that completes what was done, subpoena very important documents from persons that were interviewed, probably interview some other 30 or 40 people that we had requested to be interviewed, but were not. Mm -hmm. What are, who are some of these people? I can't really tell you at this point. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> if the Intelligence Committee in the House and a non-obstructive Intelligence Committee in the Senate were working together or being functional these last two years, do you think we'd see a big difference on where we stand in the Russia investigation, or is that just all on Mueller? Mueller has more authority and resources than we could ever imagine. So his investigation, his report will be um, very important. We have a responsibility to assess the CIA 
and the rest of the intelligence community's ability to do its job, whether it was successful or not, and whether it should have been more appropriately alerted to what was going on. Are there general, we don't know exactly what Mueller is looking at. He is tasked with, he has a specific task, but then of course it says, and wherever your investigation takes you. But in general, what areas has the House Intelligence Committee been looking at or could be looking at that to our knowledge, maybe Mueller isn't even looking at? Well, we don't know what Mueller's looking Mm -hmm. at, so we can't really say. I mean, I think it's very important for us to determine uh, to what extent the relationship between the president and the Russians uh, preceded the election, and to what extent, if any, he was compromised. There's properties in which he had an interest in both Toronto and in Panama that I believe, uh, just by open source information, had a lot of Russian mafia money. Mm-hmm. Now, we have a law in the United States that requires that you have to do due diligence to make sure there's no money laundering uh, as part of your business it's enterprise. the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. Correct. And ignorance of the Foreign Corrupt Practices it's Act no defense. is not a defense, right. And so, so I'm wondering, I w- I've been wondering about that too. I don't know. Of the indictments that have come out, none have been Foreign Corrupt Practices Act directed and yet or or involved, but I've been wondering if this would be a ripe area for investigation. You're saying your committee will look at that. I, I certainly am going to recommend that it does. Yes. Yeah. And beyond Toronto and Panama, Baku or any of these other places that uh, he's built? Baku, I don't know that we would go there, but Soho is another one that we need to look at. Trump Soho. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which uh, the local uh, authorities... The name's been stripped of it, though. That's right, because they want people to stay there. (laughs) (laughs) You understand. Uh, Speaking of Russia investigations, do you think you were better at judo than Vladimir Putin was? (laughs) (laughs) I'm better than Stephen Colbert. Yeah, I know you flipped him. Did you ever do judo with Ben Nighthorse Campbell? No, I didn't. What's your judo background, by the way? So when I was a youngster, and I talk about this as Mm -hmm. well in Undaunted, um, you know, my parents were blue-collar. We didn't have a lot of resources. I wanted to have ballet lessons. I wanted to uh, be a Girl Scout. And they said, no, we don't have the resources to that. But my father decided that I needed judo lessons. So every Wednesday night, I had fried liver for dinner, and he took me to judo class. So yeah. over the course of a number of years, I became a brown and white belt, uh-huh. which um, is, you know, a high rank for a kid. So I had fun flipping Stephen Colbert, not once, but three times when I did his his show once. Of course, that was left on the editing floor, but I still have the video of it. He's a good improver. Did he kind of yes and you and help you along with the flip? No, I just took that $3,000 suit and <laughs> flipped it onto the floor of the... Uh, the marble floor of the, the, the Cannon House office building. And do you think the liver helped you in the judo? I have no idea, but I don't, I don't eat it anymore. <laughs> yeah, who does? Um... There are two more things I want to ask you, and one is this, and it goes back to your time in Guyana. You know, there's recently been this debate about the extent to which the tone, the political tone emanating from the top as it does, creates these situations where potentially loose cannons, in fact, become live cannons, where the uh, there's so much anger out there in the ether that sometimes this gets channeled and we see a shooting in Pittsburgh or we see the uh, attempted mail bombings. On the other hand, you know, this definitely predates the internet and predates Donald Trump. And you were shot by some by an ideological extremist, if you will. So to what extent, that is my question, it is terrible 
in my opinion, I'm sure in your opinion, that the president says the things he says and is as cruel as he can be and does it with abandon. But to what extent do you think this actually creates some of the dangerous situations that we've seen? I think his conduct gives license to people to do bad things that, you know, maybe they were thinking about doing, but now feel comfortable acting on it. Certainly the president's not responsible for this maniacal person right. shooting down 11 people at the synagogue. Right. But I get more death threats now than I did before President Trump was mm-hmm. elected. I've received two that are credible enough, one to my staff, one to me, in which the uh, Capitol Police investigated. So I would suggest that people feel freer to lash out in a manner that is really dangerous. And this is in the last two years. This is so in the last been two there, years. You've been there a decade. In the last two years, there's been an uptick for sure. Right. Okay. And you know, there is a white angry male phenomenon out there that we can't uh, lose sight of it. Mm-hmm. And I also observed it when I was still in the state legislature and I was working on child support enforcement legislation um, and had to actually wear body armor at one point. So I haven't been in that situation since legislation and i attribute it to this the freedom with which people feel they can say things and think they're anonymous and frankly they're not yeah all right this is i hate to end on an inside the actor studio esque note but i know you wrote uh, a book a decade ago and you had this gratitude journals what's in your gratitude journal my gratitude you do it do you literally do it still oh, i i no, I don't still do it. Yeah. I don't have time to do it, but I should make time to do it. And I would say that you know, having gratitude actually is a, a very good uh, salve to help you get over all kinds of things. Um, there's a lot to be grateful for, even when you're down in the dumps. And so uh, I'm grateful to have a supportive spouse and children. I'm grateful that we retook the house. I'm grateful that I'm going to be able to chair the military personnel subcommittee and deal with sexual assault in the military and make families of military uh, a higher priority. And I'm glad to be alive. All right. I'm glad to have had you. Jackie Spear, U.S. Congresswoman, author of Undaunted, Surviving Jonestown, Summoning Courage and Fighting Back. Thank you so much. Thank you, Michael. And now, the spiel. I'd like to get to some big thoughts on the big night, and I am not going to allow any interlopers to distract me. Too bad, Mike. Oh, no. The president had a press conference. It's always about him, isn't it? But really, it should be about the election results. So, you know what? I'm just, I'm just going to ignore him. I can ignore him. I mean, this was a press conference that was called for 1130, a little bit afternoon. He assured us all there wouldn't be any shakeups. There will be changes. Nothing... Monumental from that standpoint. And then by 2.30, he jettisoned Jeff Sessions. Sessions, perhaps, auto-defenestrated. I didn't want to talk about him. I didn't want to talk about the executive branch. I wanted to lend you my analysis. Uh, Among the things I've observed, good night for centrists. Remember we were talking about that? 
progressive candidates were really weak in seats that they could have won if they were maybe more centrist. Oh, I also have specific insight into Max Roach of Staten Island. The guy never wears a tie. How do you go to Congress if you don't wear a tie? He lost to Dan Donovan. My analysis on him. He's got the crusty, the haircut style baldness, you know, like Joe Crowley, who also lost did. You can't let the shrubbery grow out these days. You got to go totally bald. We see McMaster's gone, so Trump replaces him with Whitaker. Totally bald. So this is this is the stuff I want to get into. Too bad, Mike. Go away, because I got to talk about Texas. Yeah, Beto O'Rourke did not win. And still, and we have been counting this on the show, no Democrat has won statewide since 94. That everyone tells you, but I'm doing the exact count. Remember, we take into account the Supreme Court, the Court of Appeals. They lost seven spots on those two court elections, and there were six statewide elections, governor, lieutenant governor, attorney general, comptroller, land management, the Senate race we talked about. Here's my count now. They went 0 for 13 yesterday. They're 0 for their last 96, the Democrats are. I wanted to get to that, but first, this, meaning this guy. Look at what happened in so many locations with governorships. Nobody talks about the governorships. Yeah, they do. Dems picked up seven. And then he said this. They said Heidi could not be beaten. Heidi Heitkamp won the last election by 0.9%. That's less than 3,000 votes. Trump won the state of North Dakota by 40%. Literally everybody said Heidi Heitkamp could be beaten. So aside from the exaggeration and the lies and the fighting with black reporters about how popular he is with blacks, there are a few different moments that I thought were interesting. He claimed on three different occasions not to be able to understand a reporter with an accent. There was a Japanese reporter. There was this guy. Uh, President Erdogan said he's not going to follow your sanctions and he's going to keep uh, buying uh, oil from... Uh, Who said that? Uh, President Erdo- Erdogan. Turkey. I know, I know. And you're going to meet him uh, soon. just can't understand his... Okay, speech. you're going to meet him soon. I just can't understand his speaking, the president says, gesturing in a, who is this, who is this Lebanese fellow type gesture? And then he called on this woman. How do you respond to critics who say that your message on the campaign towards minorities have been polarizing? I don't think it has is, been at all. But is the election of two Muslim women, one of them is veiled to the House, which is making history. Is this a rebuke of this message? I don't do you think? what you're saying. What? But is it a rebuke of this message? Do you think that this... Now, is I play these clips because they typify, I think, what the next couple of years will be like. An ongoing deafness to what he doesn't want to hear. The president told us he thought this was a great night and that Republicans did better than Republicans usually do, or at least the out party does better than the out party usually does. He read a list of candidates who didn't embrace him and they lost. He said all the candidates who did embrace him won. There's a little bit of truth to that. There's a lot of lies, like the fact that he backed in primaries the governor of Kansas, Chris Kobach, who lost, like he backed at a primary to oust Mark Sanford because he doesn't like Mark Sanford and the Democrat won that seat in South Carolina's first. So those were two areas where he definitely hurt Republican chances. Also, he campaigned for candidates who lost. He went to Nevada, tried to knock off John Tester. That seems not to have worked. But what this really shows is not some sets of data that he either cherry picks or sees through his own eyes that sometimes he's right and sometimes he's wrong. And he does have the ability to draw a large crowd and get people excited in places where they're prone to be excited by the likes of him. But what it really demonstrates is that Democrats have an opportunity. The president so much believes he's right. And part of this belief is he thinks he can 
absolutely right off the suburbs. And he thinks that he could dismiss the fact and not even consider the fact that he seems to have lost a lot of appeal in the very Midwestern states that put him over the top in 2016. I think one part of the night that he actually did win, however, was expectations, or at least our impression of the night. I, surprisingly today, am getting the idea that Democrats are happy, but they're kind of, yeah, but happy. And the Republicans are more like, yeah, but the results, instead of, yeah, but the results. The president campaign strategized and then just told us he doesn't care about the actual support of most Americans. This seems like an insane, insane strategy. It always has seemed like that to me for the last two years. We got the one data point. Data points are so rare in politics. We got a data point that it is an insane strategy. And the president has, I don't know, quintupled down on his strategy by now. Shush. No one tells him that you can't win an election if most of the people hate you. And if you only keep banging on that drum over and over again in the way you do. He actually said he would rather have a Democratic majority in the House than a Republican majority of three or two, because the governing majority of two or three would be harder to corral and convince. All the governing majority would have the ability to do, I guess, is govern, which he certainly does not have an interest in. So let him be happy with his Trump-centric version of the party that is more beholden to him than it was two days ago. But I honestly believe that the empirical reading of everything that happened is that Republicans are just smaller in number and weaker in fact. And that's it for today's show. Pierre Bien-Aimé, GIST producer, wants to thank his rival GIST producer, he just called to congratulate Daniel Schrader. No, 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 it's okay. Fought a hard race. He wants you to know the journey does not end here because we may have lost tonight, but we won something more valuable. Let's say friendship. TJ Raphael, Slate's senior producer of podcasts, is pouring over exit polls to see if Robert De Niro saying fuck Trump at the Tonys cost Kara Eastman in Nebraska's second. The gist. We speak to you today about a vital issue. It affects millions of people, and they might not even know it. It is accent deafness. Accent deafness. Accent deafness. What? Accent deafness. Exactly. Oomperu depperu dupperu, and thanks for listening.